It's the 26th of April, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, the deeper checklist. Things that you may not have thought of come from the literature, like are you checking your lupus patients and their adherence by checking drug levels? Should you be checking for PJP risk in RA patients? And what about your rheumatoid arthritis siblings? Are they at future risk? What's your role in that? Could this be a cardiovascular thing? A deeper checklist. But first, we'll start with a report on drug safety. There's actually a few new items, uh, and one is a recurring item. This is the DEA take-back program, drug take-back program, which happens twice a year, every April, every October. It's well publicized. Uh, the website has a link that you can go and put in your uh, 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 zip code and find out if you have a program, and you have lots of these programs. This is a DEA-run program to rid you and your patients of unwanted medicines. Uh, a drug trust, a drug, a drawer full of medicines that are dangerous, uh, out of date, don't know what to do with them, don't throw them down the toilet, that's a bad idea, but you worry about throwing them in the garbage, and don't worry, nobody's going through your garbage, but it doesn't seem all that safe, well, especially when it comes to narcotics. There's a big concern, again, about the safety of keeping these around and how to dispose of them. So this big DEA-sponsored drug take-back program is run by police and public health safety uh, people in your town. Uh, there's a cooperation of a number of different uh, big pharmaceuticals and the website again plug in your your uh, um, zip code and you'll find 10 different sites right around the corner where you can pile take piles of drugs and just drop them off every six months they take in about 470 tons worth of unwanted unused possibly dangerous medicines along the same vein the fda has a new program called remove the risk where you can, and they have a number of sort of modules that you can go through where you can remove the risk of having medicines within the home. Uh, and again, that link is on one of our tweets that came out um, just yesterday, um, this week. So this is an important program. It's something that you should let your patients know about. It does happen again every April and every October. We'll try to give you that update. Uh, seminars in arthritis and rheumatism had a nice report um, about uh, what happens in RA patients uh, when it comes to pregnancy? So what, the, what happened here was a very large database, the National Inpatient Sample Database, uh, covered about eight years, looked at over 42 million uh, obstetrical hospitalizations, and amongst that data set, there was 31,000 RA pregnancies. Um, and generally, some of the things that we're seeing from that are important, important for you to know, one of which is that our patients tend to have pregnancies at a later age. 31 years versus about 26 years for the rest of the population. Our patients are at significantly higher risk for a number of different things, uh, and this is why you need to be involved in the management of patients once they get pregnant. This is often not the case. Often all medicines are stopped, you turn them over to the OB, but again, you need to be involved. Uh, the things that they're at greater risk for include hypertension, premature rupture of membranes, antepartum hemorrhage, premature delivery, uh, intrauterine growth re retardation, or meaning small uh, gestational um, growth 
uh, and weight, uh, higher rate of C-sections. These are all sort of coded things that are in the hospital record. What's not coded in there is what happens to their RA, what happens to their arthritis. And often it's not quite as good as everyone thinks because again, no one's really watching it other than you and you're not involved. So again, be aware this is a big problem, 31,000 patients a year at least, and those are the hospitalized ones. There might be an equal population of unhospitalized RA patients with similar complications. Uh, an interesting data comes from Nature Communications which looks at potential role of neutrophils and netosis in driving antiphospholipid mediated thrombotic events in patients with autoimmune disease or the antiphospholipid syndrome. And using an animal model, they showed that if they use an agonist of adenosine, they could actually mitigate some of the thrombotic tendencies. And what they would do is they turn to have more adenosine on hand, uh, uh, and that actually reduces cyclic AMP and supposedly actually reduces the amount of netosis and has been shown with not just the, in, uh, the agonist that they use experimentally, but also with dipyridamol, which tends to do the same thing. Uh, it, it's a different way of looking at how we might manage um, uh, thrombotic tendencies in patients who are at risk. Again, this is not yet prime time. This is sort of research. Uh, and those of you who are interested in antiphospholipid research might want to look at this report. A Swedish study looked at the general population and RA patients and looked at cardiovascular risk. You know that RA patients are at high, higher risk for cardiovascular events. In their study, again, uh, 8,000 RA versus um, the general population, and they threw in there 11,000 uh, first degree um, or direct full siblings of the RA patients. They showed that the coronary syndrome, acute coronary syndrome, was increased in RA patients by as much as 50%. But the interesting thing here was that the siblings of RA patients also had an increased rate of acute coronary syndrome by about 22%. Turns out that all this risk was seen mainly in seropositive RAs and also seropositive siblings. So this is a big story about what? About first degree relatives and their potential risk. We know that if you're a first degree relative and you have CCP, much more so than rheumatoid factor, um, you have a substantial risk and that once you start having arthralgias, uh, other lab abnormalities, the risk goes up and up and up. But now we're looking at patients who are just seropositive uh, and who are first degree relatives, obviously, of an RA patient, and they too have an increased risk of cardiovascular events, suggesting that subclinical inflammation may be going on in patients who are first degree relatives. I've always said to my patients who were first degree relatives or offspring, no, oh, don't worry, don't worry, it's just not that big a deal. I think it could be a bigger deal than what uh, we've been thinking, and I think watching this story uh, will be important. So um, I don't know that you need to alarm your patients and their siblings right away, but I do think you need to take more seriously this issue of first degree relatives, especially when they're seropositive, and how they're gonna be managed and their complete management, including sending them to other doctors like primary care and or cardiologists. Um, I don't know about you, but what, are the, what about these reports from the orthopedists that worry about non-steroidal use and how non-steroidals are gonna screw up the outcomes of their surgery, never understood these reports and why they have this in their brain. Um, well, I found a meta-analysis and it shows, uh, it's, a, it's actually, a, it's a systematic review. I'm not sure about the rigidity of this, but it looked at a number of different reports and it showed significant reductions in union and significant increases in non-union for patients who are taking non-steroidals. This is looking at patients with fractures, osteotomies, 
uh, spinal surgery, fusions, etc. This was seen in adults, not seen in kids. Um, this was not seen in people who had short-term exposure uh, and low-dose exposure to non-steroidals. Uh, and it's sort of an alarming report. But you know what? It's from the ortho journals. And it's, a, it's not really, uh, they don't really describe the, the, the rigidity by which the analyses were done. Um, again, if you, I, I tried to look up the rest of the literature on this. I found 12 papers, all from ortho journals. What I'd like to see is sort of a, a Cochrane analysis of this issue um, or some other more rigid analysis or better yet claims data that would look at whether these complications heard, occur at a higher rate. I, I want you to know about this report. I'm still not convinced this is a big issue on our patients. Yeah, it would be great for all our patients having surgery to be on no medicine, but that's impractical and improbable and also hurts our patients. So uh, we need more research in this area. Uh, an, an, a United Kingdom National Health Service study looked at almost, um, what was our number, 13,961 RA patients, followed them uh, over uh, a number of years and showed that overall RA patients have a one in five or nearly a 20% lifetime risk of having uh, joint replacement surgery, 22% for knee replacement, 17% for hip replacement. Um, and this was for people who were the average RA patients, meaning that if you were 64 female non-smoker, normal BMI, then those were the rates. And those are sort of high. The rates go higher when you have worse disease and when you have younger patients. So it's an interesting number and one that you can, I think, reliably quote to your patients. Of course, we know that surgeries have gone down with more aggressive therapy, the advent of biologics and combinations, but still, one in five is nothing to um, shun as being uh, inconsequential. Uh, an interesting report comes from Japan about PJP, PJP prophylaxis, pneumocystis uh, urovecchi and uh, pneumonia, what used to be called PCP is now PJP. They studied uh, 2,600 RA patients and found only 19 cases of PJP in their population. The risk factors, and they actually assigned a risk score to these risk factors, methotrexate in a high dose. In Japan, that's greater than six milligrams per week. What's the equivalent here? Maybe it's greater than 15 milligrams per, per week in the United States or in other developed countries outside of Japan. Elderly, a threefold higher risk. The, by the way, the high methotrexate, four and a half fold higher risk. Uh, use of, of multiple immunosuppressants, two or more, 3.7-fold risk. Prednisone greater than five, a 12.4-fold higher risk. And what they showed is that a combination of two or three of these that gives you a score, a risk score of greater than five, gives you uh, either a 2.3 to 5.8% risk of PJP. That's interesting. I don't see much PJP, even in my very bad patients, but it might make me rethink and look for it again. In our analysis and others who have looked at PJP amongst RA patients, one of the unifying factors right now amongst our patients is actually rituximab use. So I think you should think about this. I don't routinely prophylax our patients that are on, that, that have active or bad rheumatoid arthritis. I think I need more data. I would consider prophylaxing if I'm gonna use chronic um, rituximab, especially if they have very active disease, steroids, high methotrexate, all these things I already mentioned. Uh, should you check hydroxychloroquine levels? You know, we had a nice report from Michelle Petrie and her group that looked at this showing that it doesn't have much utility uh, in the management other than number one, telling you about how adherent the patient is. So this was a, a discussion that came up in a recent report. 
I tweeted it because I think I want you to think about this. We do know that RA patients on hydroxychloroquine, um, there's about 50% non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine. It's sort of shocking and surprising. Uh, and again, you can routinely assay for hydroxychloroquine levels. I don't do it, but I probably would do it if I had lupus patients not doing well or getting worse, um, especially when I had issues about what dose I was using, high versus low, and the new guidelines, and should they be on 200 or 400. should always do the calculation on everybody on hydroxychloroquine, especially in women, to make sure you're within the current guidelines of being 5 milligrams per kilogram or less, um, and that's if you believe the new guidelines. So. What's your best therapy for calcinosis cutis? So last week I tweeted out that NXP2 antibodies associated with dermatomyositis may be also associated with a higher risk of calcinosis cutis. So I put out a tweet and we had a lot of response, 260 responses on the in Twitter community. And this is what everybody came back with. 15% basically said thiosulfate. Some people actually said they would use topical thiosulfate. 16% calcium channel blockers, 15% bisphosphonates. And really the majority, 56% saying, I don't know, I have no idea, nothing works. I've not seen any literature that works. And really that's true. The literature is not good here. There are no good studies. I saw some cockamamie things on the internet, like people digging out the calcium deposits from their skin. Don't do that. You should have them surgically removed by an experienced plastic uh, surgeon or dermatologist who does that kind of surgery. Um, but really we are in dire need of therapy for patients who have calcinosis whatever the cause, whether it's from calciphylaxis or associated with MCTD, dermatomyositis, scleroderma, et cetera. Corona took a good look at their patients who had um, solid cancers who were on biologics. And there's some interesting data here. As you know, the new ACR guidelines, old ACR guidelines at this point said that you can use whatever you want in a patient with RA who has a solid tumor, lung cancer, skin cancer, pancreatic cancer, et cetera. What they, you know, again, there's a little bit of discussion about what to do with hematologic malignancy, but solid tumors go right ahead. But in the corona experience, this is very interesting. At the time that they had their cancer, 42% were on the biologic and or um, a, uh, a, an oral small molecule like one of the JAK inhibitors. Uh, and that's in the 12 months prior to the cancer. Post-cancer, 31% stayed on the same therapy. And that after the cancer was diagnosed, 5% switched to a biologic and 10% started a new biologic. The point being that um, I'm very proud of many of you who are not afraid to treat or continue aggressive therapy in the face of cancer. I've always said, let cancer be managed by the hematologist, oncologist, you manage the arthritis. It really, really are, your drugs are not impairing or impeding the management of cancer. Uh, and I think it's an important thing to consider. Uh, a few new reports. One is uh, uh, Skyrizi. This is Rizinkizumab, recently approved by the FDA for psoriasis. These are, um, this is a new drug. It's, uh, it's an IL-23 inhibitor. It's a, now the third IL-23 inhibitor approved by the FDA, uh, approved by the FDA in the last 12 months. Um, Skyrizi, great name. Uh, sort of sounds like an internet game or a ride at Euro Disney, but Skyrizi, Skyrizi, Skyrizi. Again, it's Rizinkizumab. Uh, there are trials going on in psoriatic arthritis and other conditions. We might see that in rheumatology in the months to come. Uh, two more reports. Ustekinumab, effective in Bichette's disease. This was a surprise. As you know, Bichette's is not much. There's uh, data about a Primalast. Uh, Well-designed well studies. This is a 30-patient study, open-label study, 
where what they showed was that at week 12, the mean number of oral ulcerations decreased from a median of two down to zero. Uh, there was a definition of a complete response, which was achieved by 60 and 89% at week 12 and, and, and week 24, respectively. Uh, and that, you know, 12 months later, 85% of patients are still taking the ustekinumab, which is given every three months. This needs to be further studied. This is sort of encouraging. I don't know if I'm gonna jump in and use this in my patients. I think I'm more likely to use Bichette's and hope that that's gonna get FDA approved in the next year or so. Uh, my, I had a report last Friday on uh, hydrodynous suppurativa and a high comorbidity rate. And, and the takeaway on that is that patients with hydradinitis are actually more likely to have uh, comorbidities than our psoriatic patients. We know psoriasis patients have a lot of comorbidities. It's even higher in uh, hydradinitis patients. The most common comorbidities are COPD, diabetes, with or without complications, liver disease, uh, and then when they have higher rates of complications and multi multiple comorbidities, actually the mortality rate goes up significantly. If you have a, a Charleston comorbidity index of five or more, um, you have a five-fold higher rate of mortality compared to patients who had no comorbidities. So something to think about in the few patients you have who have hydradenitis, uh, I know they're difficult to manage. You know, adalimumab is probably the only drug right now that's approved for this, but there are multiple things that rheumatologists do to manage these people, but comorbidity management is probably gonna be a big thing. We'll end with a reminder to go to roomnow.live to register and start looking at some of our videos from roomnow.live, 16 hours of fabulous lectures by the world, world's leading uh, lecturers. Look at some of the TED Talks, we call them Step Talks, by myself, Lenny um, uh, Calabrese, uh, Philip Conahan, uh, a whole bunch of people gave some really great uh, step talks that I think are worth looking at. They're just 15 minutes, real quick looks. That's it for this week. Go to the website, check out these links and more. We'll talk to you next week on roomnow.com.